Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the theory surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Aaron Fleming. This is my second episode. If you listen to the first one, I'm very thankful. If you're a first-time listener, then welcome. This week, I'm going to talk about the Cleveland Torso Murders, also known as the Kingsbury Run Murders or the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. The list of victims is generally thought to be 12, but some think there may be upwards of 20 to 50 possible victims. This all takes place during the mid to late 30s in an area known as Kingsbury Run in Cleveland. Kingsbury Run is an area on the east side of Cleveland near Shaker Heights. From what I've read, it's a very dismal place. This is right after the Great Depression. There seemed to be an area of the, where down on their luck folk, folks went. It's referred to as a shanty town. Makeshift homes, transients, alcoholics, sex workers, gambling. Most regarded it as a dangerous place to hang out. And unfortunately, this became a stalking ground. On September 23, 1935, two young boys were walking home from school. They were going down a steep incline in Kingsbury Run, known as Jackass Hill. 
And I know you have to laugh at that unfortunate name. Something white caught the older boy's eye. Upon closer inspection, the boys discovered the naked body of a man. He was clad only in black socks and missing his head. The body had been positioned on his back with his legs stretched out, arms at his side. The victim was 28-year-old Edward Andrasi. He was reportedly a bisexual with a reputation as a drunk and a criminal record for carrying a concealed weapon. He had been dead for three days before he was found. In addition to being decapitated and emasculated, the body was clean and drained of blood. Rope burns on his wrist showed that he had been restrained, but cause of death was from being decapitated. As if the scene wasn't grisly enough, 30 feet away another body was found. It was that of an older man, also decapitated and emasculated. When you're emasculated, it means that your testicles and your penis are removed. His body was badly decomposed and the skin was discolored and it had a leathery appearance. Apparently, the killer had kept the body for a couple of weeks before disposing of it. The leathery appearance due to an amateur attempt to preserve it. The older victim was never identified. The press had a field day dubbing the killer the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. And if the police thought they were only investigating a double homicide, they were soon proven wrong. Four months after the first bodies, another dreadful discovery was made. A woman was shooing her dog away from what she thought was a basket of ham outside of the Hart Manufacturing Building near East 20th Street. Only it wasn't ham in the baskets. It was a human arm. The half-body of this time, a female victim, was wrapped in newspaper and put into two half-bushel baskets. Fingerprints proved that it was Florence Flo Palillo. It's a 41-year-old barmaid slash waitress and part-time sex worker. Florence lived on East 32nd, near what was called the Roaring Third. It was just east of Kingsbury Run, and its reputation preceded it, being very notorious for its bars, brothels, gambling dens, and flop houses. Like the previous victims, Flo had been dismembered and her head was missing. The remaining parts of her body were located two weeks later in an empty lot. A burlap sack held her other arm, legs, torso, and head. The recent discovery of these bodies brought the police back to a case with a very similar profile. Back in September of 1934, a woman's torso was found on the cold shores of Lake Erie. The thighs were attached but amputated at the knees. Just like the older man, she was covered in a chemical preserve which made her skin red and leathery. The press dubbed her the Lady of the Lake since no identification was ever made. Since she was apparently the first victim of the killer and identified after the other bodies, she became known as victim number zero. In the same year, Elliot Ness came to Cleveland to become the safety director. Ness was famous for enforcing prohibition in Chicago as the leader of the Untouchables. He and the 11 men crew who were given the name after refusing bribes by gangster Al Capone. After successfully bringing Capone down, he was dispatched to the Cleveland area to clean up police corruption and to modernize the fire department. He had his work cut out for him with the work of the serial killer.
The next victim had a rather notorious nickname as well, the Tattooed Man. On June 5th, two boys found the head of a white male wrapped in a pair of trousers near East 55th Street Bridge in Kingsbury Run. The body was found a quarter of a mile away in front of the Nickel Plate Railroad Police Building. Clean and drained of blood like victim number one, he was also headless, but this time his genitals were intact. Cause of death was decapitation. He could not be identified, so police advertised that he was heavily tattooed, and they made a death mask, which was displayed at the Great Lakes Exposition, with the hopes of some recognition. To their dismay, no leads panned out, and you can still see this death mask today at the Cleveland Police Museum. The killer struck again a month later. A teen girl found the body of 41-year-old male in the woods near Clinton Road and Big Creek. It was obvious due to the amount of blood at the scene that he had been killed there. John Doe number 3 had been dismembered while alive, his head found nearby. Decomposition showed that the victim was actually killed before the tattooed man. And then while trying to hop a train, a transient trips over the half-torso of John Doe number 4 on September 10, 1936. The scene was once again Kingsbury Run. The man appeared to be around 30 years old, missing his genitals and his head. The only clue to his identity was a hat that was found. A housewife near the area said she'd given it to a homeless man at a camp nearby. Police ended up finding the lower half of his torso and legs in what turned out to be a spectacle. Over 600 people watched as police fished the remains from a nearby pool that had turned into somewhat of an open sewer. Coroner A.J. Pierce said the lack of hesitation marks indicated a strong, confident killer that was familiar with human anatomy. The head had been cut off in one bold, clean stroke. Luckily, he died instantly. The newspapers were going crazy over the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run. They also came up with the name Torso Clinic for Coroner Pierce, Ness, Police, and other experts brought in to profile the killer. Detectives Peter Merlo and Martin Zalewski went undercover full-time, dressed as transients, sometimes on their own time, in the hopes of catching a lead. Police interviewed as many as 1,500 people. It became the biggest police investigation in Cleveland history. The Torso Clinic gained a new member after election time. Pierce was then replaced by a young Democrat by the name of Sam Gerber. So there was a pause in the murders until February 23rd of 1937. Near the same spot where the infamous Lady of the Lake was found, the body of Jane Doe 1 was located. This time it appeared that decapitation occurred after death. She had been cut in half. The lower portion of her body washed ashore three months later near East 30th Street. The killer was taking full advantage of the working poor. These people were barely making ends meet, very down on their luck. Since many were transients, it made ID almost impossible. With both male and female victims, it was harder for police to determine a good profile of who might be next. Every lead basically led nowhere. 
and such is the case of the next victim, Rose Wallace of Scoville Avenue. She was a petite woman around 40 years of age. Her skull was discovered on June 6th of 1937, but she'd actually been killed in 1936, decapitated and missing a rib. She was the only victim of color. The rest of her body was found near her head in a burlap sack under the Lorraine Carnegie Bridge. Shortly after, in July of 1937, labor problems in the flats caused the National Guard to be called in. While in a passing tugboat on the Cuyahoga River, a guardsman saw a piece of victim number nine. Over the next few days, police found all of the victim except his head. He was in his late 30s, and he'd had his abdomen gutted and his heart ripped out. There was some hope after a witness said he saw two men in a boat where the body was found the night before. But, as usual, no leads turned up. Once again, there was a period of calm until the next year on April 8, 1938. A young laborer finds the lower half of a woman's leg on the banks of the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland Flats. On May 2nd, a human thigh was found floating in the river. Police searched and found a burlap sack containing a headless torso cut in half, accompanied by a thigh and the left foot. The head and the rest of the body were never found and no ID was made. Known only as Jane Doe III, she appeared to be around 25 and was the only victim to have drugs in her system. Although it was unclear whether she had taken the drugs herself or the killer had administered them. So maybe this was how he captured and subdued his victims. Then on August 16, 1938, another double finding happened. These were the 11th and 12th victims. Scrap collectors foraging at the East 9th Street Lakeshore Dump find a woman's torso wrapped in a man's double-breasted blazer and then wrapped in an old quilt. The legs and arms were found in a makeshift box wrapped in brown butcher paper that were held together by rubber bands. The head was found wrapped in a similar fashion. Coroner Gerber said it appeared that some parts looked refrigerated. A second body was found yards away. The man's head was found in a can, and both bodies were placed within view of Nessa's office window, as if the killer were taunting him. Fed up, Ness and 35 policemen conducted a raid of the, quote, hobo jungles. Police gathered up 36 men. Shacks were set on fire and the whole area was burned to the ground after police had searched for clues. Once again, no leads turned up, and Ness was crucified in the press for the debacle. Those were the 12 victims. However, many people believe that there were more. I'll discuss that in a few moments. Right now, I want to talk about the possible suspects. At one point, police thought they had found where the victims were killed. Ness had a theory that the killer had his own home, where he killed most of the victims and his own car which to dispose of the bodies. A photo negative was found of Edward Andrasi, the victim number one. In the photo, Edward was reclined on a bed very seductively. Publication of the photo led to tips that the photo was taken in the bedroom of a middle-aged gay man who lived with his sisters. Detectives searched the home and found blood and a knife. 
However, the blood was the suspect's. He was prone to nosebleeds and there wasn't any blood found on the knife. The suspect was cleared of suspicion when it was found that he was in jail for sodomy when one of the victims turned up. Another promising suspect was 52-year-old Frank Dolezal. He was a regular at the saloon frequented by Edward and Rose Wallace. He had also lived with Flo Palillo for a time. Police searched his home and found a brown substance in the bathroom that they thought was blood and a knife with old blood stains. County Sheriff Martin O'Donnell arrested the bricklayer for the murder of Flo Palillo. After hours of questioning, he confessed to her murder. He later recanted, saying he was beaten into confessing. This was backed up by holes in his story and the broken ribs suffered during police custody. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Before he could be tried, he was found hanged in his cell. This death was very suspicious. Frank was 5'8 and found hanging from a 5'7 hook. In the end, no one really thought he was the killer. The most promising lead came after Ness assigned three of his best agents, Virginia Allen, Barney Davis, and Jim Mansky to infiltrate members of high society. I'm not sure why he did this, but it led to Virginia Allen finding a fit. Ness called the suspect Gaylord Sundheim. He didn't want him to name him publicly. He fit the profile, a large man who studied medicine. The suspect was actually Dr. Francis E. Sweeney. 
Sweeney was a veteran of World War I that served in a medical unit that conducted amputations. He was from the east side of Cleveland, near Kingsbury Run. In fact, he had worked as a surgical resident at St. Alexis in Kingsbury Run. During the war, he had suffered a head injury. Many of you know this is a huge red flag. Many serial killers are known to have suffered head injuries. He also had a father with a history of mental illness. Sweeney himself suffered the same fate. He was rumored to be bisexual, which would account for the male and female victims. It was all fitting into place for Ness. So why not make an arrest? Well, because Sweeney was the first cousin of prominent and highly influential Congressman Martin L. Sweeney, and also related by marriage to Sheriff O'Donnell. Ness knew he would have to have some concrete hard facts to arrest him. Otherwise, there would be little chance of prosecution. Ness interrogated him and gave him two polygraphs, both of which he failed. Even the polygraph expert giving the test to Ness said to Ness that this was his guy. Before Ness could make another move, Sweeney voluntarily committed himself to an institution. And then it seemed like the killing stopped. Sweeney sent Ness many taunting postcards and letters while in the hospital. One was even signed F.E. Sweeney, Paranoidal Nemesis. He died in a veterans hospital in Dayton, Ohio in 1964. Let's keep in mind that if you voluntarily admit yourself to a mental hospital, you can also check yourself out. You'll understand why I bring that up later. Ness died at age 54 in 1957. He was virtually broke when he died. The glory of bringing down gangster Al Capone was almost forgotten. After not finding the mad butcher, his reputation didn't recover. It wasn't until after his death, with the publication of a book he'd written with uh, author Oscar Fraley, and the TV series and the movie of The Untouchables that he was finally seen as a hero. There were other murders that some think are related to the Cleveland cases. On October 6, 1925, a steel worker was duck hunting in a secluded area between West Pittsburgh and the rail yards at Newcastle Junction, PA. Locals referred to the area as Hell's Half Acre due to the swampy land, bogs, brush, and its proximity to the railroad tracks. The man found the decomposed nude body of a decapitated white male. Two days later, a detective was near where the body was discovered when he detected a severe odor. He dug under a log and found the missing head. In an effort to identify the man, pictures were taken and displayed at Rudder Studio on East Washington Street. That's very similar to what they did with the tattooed man. Sadly, in this case also, no one came forward with clues. A week later, on October 17th, four boys also out duck hunting found a skeleton. It was partially clothed, skull missing. The male appeared to be over six feet tall, and it was determined that the head had been removed with precision. Publicity about the find caused the area to be inundated with sightseers. Two days later, a human skull and a bundle of men's clothes were found after a search of the area. The skull was that of a woman, dead for over a year, and the clothes belonged to that of the tall man. 
The swamp was then widely searched by Pennsylvania State Police and volunteers. They found a lower jaw, vertebrae, 15 small bones, which were believed to be fingers, and a clotted mat of hair on a cap. The press started calling it the murder swamp. Authorities surmised that the victims were killed elsewhere and then dumped in the swamp. The killer had to be strong. The victims were dragged a good distance into the swamp. Since they were decapitated with skill, the police thought he had to be medically trained or possibly a hunter. The victims were never identified. Then, nine years later, on October 16, 1934, two young men who were running dogs through the swamp happened upon the decomposed remains of a nude man. This time, the skull was still attached. He was buried in a shallow grave on a bluff. Cause of death was not determined, and he was not identified. So all was quiet until July 1, 1936. Two workers at Newcastle Junction were inspecting boxcars that had been vacant. And you guessed it, they found a de- badly decomposed headless corpse. It was a nude male covered in a burlap sack. Underneath the corpse was a tobacco pouch and three newspapers, two from the Pittsburgh Press and one from the Cleveland Plain Dealer from the year of 1933. On October 13, 1939, four boys looking for walnuts near the edge of the murder swamp found a decomposed body in the tall grass. The body had been piled with newspapers and burned. One paper was the Youngstown Vindicator. Once again, the head was removed with some skill. About a week later, a worker at Newcastle Junction found the missing head in an empty gondola car. The bodies just continued to pile up. On May 3, 1940, workers at the rail yards at McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania, were inspecting boxcars. Much like the previous boxcar finding, this one was the same, a nude man covered in a burlap sack and missing his head. Two more victims were found in boxcars after a more extensive search. The one decapitated victim had Nazi carved into his chest and the other was cut into pieces. A detective investigating thought the murders were possibly committed in the rail yards in Youngstown, Ohio, hence the significance of the Youngstown newspapers. So remember Detective Peter Merlo? He worked undercover for Elliot Ness riding the rails. There's actually a great photo of him online dressed for the part. He investigated the killings until his death in 1947 and he had a theory that the killer rode the rails that ran along the Pittsburgh-Newcastle-Youngstown-Cleveland route. He thought there could be upwards of 50 victims. In addition to the murder swamp, there were more body parts found in these vicinities that could be related. Later in 1939, a headless body was found in the Monongahela River in Pennsylvania. Two years later, two legs were found near Pittsburgh in the Ohio River. And a year after that, a headless corpse turned up again in the Monongahela River. Despite Peter Merlo's hard work, new leads panned out. I agree that these killings had to be related to the torso murders in some way. His theory about the railroad route makes sense. So you wonder if it was a railway worker or someone just hopping the rails. 
Just like in the torso murders, the killer picked people that no one would miss. No family ever came forward to identify any of these victims. That made them easy prey for the killer. At this point, I'd like to read a letter that was reprinted in the Cleveland Press. It was sent to a detective in Los Angeles. Chief of Police Matowitz, You can rest easy now, as I have come to sunny California for the winter. I felt bad operating on those people, but science must advance. I shall astound the medical profession, a man with only a D.C. What did their lives mean in comparison to hundreds of sick and diseased twisted bodies? Just laboratory guinea pigs found on any public street. No one missed them when I failed. My last case was successful. I now know the feeling of Pasteur, Thoreau, and other pioneers. Right now I have a volunteer who will absolutely prove my theory. They call me mad and a butcher, but the truth will out. I have failed but once here. The body has not been found and never will be. But the head, minus the features, is buried on Century Boulevard between Western and Crenshaw. I feel it is my duty to dispose of the bodies as I do. It is God's will not to let them suffer. Signed, X. It's a pretty chilling letter. Remember Elliot Ness's prime suspect, Dr. Francis Sweeney? He sent harassing letters and postcards to Ness after voluntarily committing himself. Like I said, if you commit yourself, you can always check yourself out. So did Sweeney do this? I'm going to bring up one last murder that is eerily similar to those of the Mad Butcher. You've most likely heard of the Black Dahlia. Elizabeth Short was a pretty 22-year-old with hopes of stardom. But like a lot of women who have the same dream, dreams can fall short of happening. And Elizabeth fell on hard times, and some say turned to sex work to make ends meet. On January 15, 1947, Betty Bursinger and her three-year-old daughter were walking in the neighborhood of Limert Park, a suburb of Los Angeles. Betty thought she saw a mannequin in a vacant lot. If you guessed it wasn't a mannequin, you're right. It was Elizabeth Short, naked, mutilated, drained of blood. She had been cut clean in half. Of course, the case was sensationalized in the press. She was dubbed the Black Dahlia, an obvious ode to the flowers she most often wore in her hair and the noir movies popular at the time. Now, this is nine years after the last torso case, but one can't deny the similarities between the Black Dahlia killer and the Cleveland torso killer. The bodies were cleaned. In fact, Elizabeth had bristles from a brush embedded into her skin. She was also tied up, like the very first victim in the torso case, and was restrained. Genital mutilation was present in almost all the victims and Elizabeth Short. Many were posed as was she. Think back to the victims that seemed to be deliberately placed outside of Nessa's window. Elizabeth was out in the open in this vacant lot. I think the only thing missing to cement it in my mind that they were the same killer is the fact that she wasn't decapitated. But she was cut cleanly in half. We've heard that fact many times in the Cleveland cases, and she was obviously killed elsewhere and dumped. That's the M.O. of the Cleveland killer. For me, Francis Sweeney fits the profile. 
Elliot Ness went to his grave thinking he was the man. I would have to say that I agree with him. The Black Dahlia case gets pretty extensive. In fact, there's a phenomenal podcast called Hollywood and Crime that delves into it in great detail. There's a long list of suspects. Many people have their theories on who might have killed her. It's not out of the realm of possibility that Sweeney could have checked himself out and went to California. He could have sent that letter. I don't think either the Black Dahlia case nor the Cleveland Torso murders will ever be solved, and most certainly not by me. We all have our own theories. Only the killer or killers know. So thanks a lot for listening. I'm planning on getting this podcast up on a weekly basis. I've managed to set up a Facebook account that's under Red Rum Blonde and a Twitter profile that's under Blonde Red Rum. I'd really love suggestions for future episodes. So for now, I think you can comment if you're listening on SoundCloud, and I would love and appreciate ratings and subscriptions on iTunes. Like I said, thank you so much to anyone who has already listened and subscribed. I've always wanted to do my own podcast, and I'm so thrilled to actually make it happen. Thanks especially to my boyfriend Julian for getting me my microphone and urging me to do this. I really couldn't have done it without him. So thanks a lot and see you next week.